I can't solve all the problems of school to prison pipeline or poverty, but I thought maybe I could interrupt and reduce the recidivism rates in the back rate. And so to do that, I uh, learned about vertical farming, this indoor vertical farming, which is essentially growing plants indoors 365 days a year under light. So I thought I could address carbon footprint, which is, I thought I could address recidivism. I could address uh, address the issue of uh, locally grown food that is pesticide free. And by creating a business model, which essentially meant that the word second chances applies, that we only hire people coming out of prison. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today I actually have a special colleague and friend who uh, a few years ago had a chance to have lunch with he and his wife. Uh, I, we were part of a mastermind group of over 100 authors, and we had come together in Philadelphia. And I came to learn that our guest today has done 490 TEDx uh, talks as part of being an organizer in his TEDx talks that he organized. So in other words, there was over 450 speakers, 490 presentations have now exceeded 27 million downloads or views. So he has a lot of experience in this space, but he also has developed property around the world in the British Virgin Islands. He started in the Middle East, took college in the US, so you can hear his story. But the point being is that whenever there was an opportunity, he grabbed a hold of it. And my encouragement for you today, before we get into Ajit, George, and my guest, is what are you doing to make a difference? What have you done to clarify to you for you to contribute at the highest level? And one of the things that CRG does as well as just about any other company in the world is give you tools and resources to help you on this clarity version. If it's our personality or personal style indicator or our values assessment or one of the other 10 or 12 assessments that we have available to you. So my encouragement to you is that you are worth the investment. Uh, take the time, complete an assessment, a tool. There will be a link in the show notes that we have on whatever platform you're listening on to take yourself to the next level. The other side, when we think about it, is if you are getting benefit from the show, it is so much appreciated if you can leave a positive comment, a review, or share this, or subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. So here's our interview with Ajit George. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ken Keys. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keys. Well, our next guest I actually had lunch with in Philadelphia not three or four years ago. Time flies so quickly. And I had a delightful lunch with him and his wife are both experts in the professional development field, and you'll hear his story. But welcome to Secrets of Success, Ajit George. Ajit, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for remembering me from that lunch, and thanks for inviting me. Well, I know, I think I had to buy your lunch. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Is that we were hanging out in the Quantum Leap program and as fellow authors and professional developers, and it was just neat to kind of get to know you and Sarah a little bit before uh, we had to depart. And of course, we had some commonality in the assessment industry, but uh, 
Ajit as a, an individual who has really made a huge impact around the world. We want to, well, I know you have this new venture that you've just started, Second Chances Farm, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but we like the journey, you know, where uh, people were born. I know that you have sort of a diverse background. You've been all around the world with some of your responsibilities. So first of all, what, uh, where were you born and where did sort of your uh, earlier years, where did you grow up? Fair question. Nobody asks those questions anymore, so I'm delighted to go back. I was born 65 years ago uh, in Kuwait. Uh, my parents are originally from India, South India, Kerala, a state which is a small state in the south of India, to be precise. They went there when my fa- when the, when the, in the early days when oil was discovered and uh, there was a large contingent of Indians that went to Kuwait to help make all that happen. Uh, I lived in Kuwait for the first 11 years, grew up in an international school um, in a, what I would call almost idyllic, perfect life uh, that, as, as, as I remember it, is as, as idyllic as I could remember it to be. Uh, it was uh, free from any worries or concerns, meeting kids from all around the world. Um, and without nationalities to speak of, even though there were Egyptians, Jordanians, Palestinians, uh, Lebanese and Pakistanis and uh, Sri Lankans and people from all around the world, uh, we really didn't think of each other as nationalities because now we were in a, what I would call for the lack of a better word, neutral country. And so our lives were born in this world where the microcosm was, the world was the oyster. And so I grew up there for the first 11 years. I went to India when my father retired, uh, and in uh, those days people retired pretty early. I think my father retired at the age of 50. That was a mandatory requirement to British Empire, and went to India. I spent four years. Uh, I graduated high school. I spent one degree, one year in college, and then as a 16-year-old, came to the United States to go to college at the University of Delaware. Now, how did that happen? Here you are. I mean, first of all. I just want to back up for a second, Ajit, because I think you made an important point around when you have diversity within your classroom, then you actually don't even notice the diversity. So so what were some of those sort of, even at 11, leaving at a young age, what were some of the principles that you still embrace today that what that was so valuable contribution to your life in terms of your value set and your character and some of the things that you've chosen and you teach others? Well, I think for me, it was learning that uh, we grew up, I mean, growing up in Kuwait, Kuwait was a primarily Islamic country, but there were Christians, there were Hindus, there were Buddhists, there were Jains, um, and there were different kinds of uh, Islam. And so uh, there were also Palestinians who were Christians, which uh, people sometimes don't realize there was a significant Palestinian population that was Christian. So you come to accept differences uh, uh, in people without really focusing on them. And I think that's perhaps the most valuable lesson I learned was, did I like the person? Did the person like me? Were they kind? Was it somebody I wanted to hang around? And as long as that was the criteria, it didn't matter that you know, what your religious background, whether you are Palestinian, in the case of Palestinians particularly, they were stateless citizens in Kuwait. They were not, they didn't, they could not get citizenship. Uh, or if for different parts of India, there were people there, obviously, with different differences. In Pakistan, India, that have fought wars uh, since their creation of Pakistan, 
we were going to class playing soccer, playing badminton, being in the swimming pool. It didn't matter. So I think having a neutral territory is what I would describe uh, our setting. It really enabled us to really uh, not focus on what mm. I call the differences that we uh, as geographical boundaries create uh, through maps and religious differences. And it's very helpful to have that early. And it enabled me, for example, today, I don't worry where I, I am a practicing Christian, I'm an Episcopalian, but it doesn't matter whether somebody is a agnostic or an atheist or they don't believe in anything at all. Uh, I think it's all about, uh, it has helped me to have a very diverse selection of French friends without becoming very narrow in how I choose. Mm. Well, hence the reason you're on this podcast, because you're a nice person. Well, I I get I'm if I am nice it's because of all the people who are nice to me, not because of me. <laughs> so well, uh, you, that little bit of humility just snuck out there on you. So I'm calling you on it, Najib. So you. with that, uh, what was really driving? And thank you for that wisdom. What was driving your decision and also courage to come to the U.S. at 16? Well, the, I had a choice. Normally, people from India would go to the United Kingdom for their higher studies because that's in the British Empire. That's what you did. You went to Cambridge. You went to Oxford. Obviously, there are other schools also. But I wanted to go to a place that did not, that was not rigid and bound by tradition. As much as England is a very interesting place, it is uh, thousands of years of tradition. And I just did not believe I would have the same opportunities uh, that I would have in the U.S. as uh, if I went to the United Kingdom. So early on, I said, if I had a choice to go anywhere, it would be the United States, because it was, uh, to me, the land of freedom. And, and now I came here in 1970, so it'll have been literally 50 years this year uh, since I came. And I continue to believe and having traveled to over 100 countries in the world, lived in numerous countries, that there is no country as interesting and diverse and complicated and messy and, and got all his blips as the United mm -hmm. States. And so, I, you know, I think the choice at that point was go to the United Kingdom, um, which would be the normal place, mother country, because India and the UK had a long relationship, Kuwait had a long relationship with the UK, or come to a, what I would say, a fascinating new whole place uh, like the US. It was, uh, and it was clearly uh, sounded much more exciting because it didn't have all the tradition that I needed to fight to become equal. Mm. Oh, exactly, exactly. So then what uh, university or college did you go to coming over? I went to the University of Delaware, which is a, a place in the east coast of the United States, and then finished my undergraduate and then my graduate degree at Antioch uh, College and Antioch University. Um, and um, and uh, w one of the interesting things for me, uh, my parents wanted me to be a doctor because that's what... Uh, 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 and that is all 
they want. That's what all all young boys in my family were aspire supposedly aspiring to. And if you didn't want to be a doctor, then you needed to be an engineer. I didn't want to be a doctor and an engineer. So the challenge when you have a in a family which has decided what you want and then you're not, then you decide what you want to be. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I ended up becoming an entrepreneur, which is the last thing my parents would have wished on me because entrepreneur is not a job, it's not a profession. And I drifted into entrepreneurship because it gave me freedom to experiment. Uh, my father, when he died, had still had no idea what he did. I think he was deeply disappointed in me that I wasn't a, I mean, he said, you know, if you can't be a doctor and you can't be an engineer, you should um, you should be a teacher. Those are noble professions, and they didn't see entrepreneurship as a noble profession. So mm. I am somewhat an accident history. I drifted, and I suspect I'm still at age 65 trying to figure out what what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> of course. Now let's just go back. What did you get your graduate degree in? Organizational, the organization development, so OD. So it really was one of the most useful things because it helped me to every, it has helped me every day to understand how organizations and people work and forced me to realize there's no one formula. So. Mm. Okay, so you finished college and, you yeah. know, I get the, the pressure and we talk about that is on the show and I'm author of a book, The Quest for Purpose, where there's a lot of social pressures in environmental pressures, cultural pressures, to go down certain pathways that are not part of our heart, not part of something that engages us. So in spite of that, uh, you move towards the entrepreneurial freedom, but also <laughs> the burden of that too. So after you finished college, what were some of the things you did after that? Well, I think the, the, the thing I did, first I worked in the nonprofit world, uh, in public radio and public television in Philadelphia. I um, I learned uh, that was 1976 to 1980, and it was interesting. I got I got hired as director of development, which in the, in the United States typically means fundraising, uh, but in public radio and uh, and then public television, where I worked in the fourth largest market, which was Philadelphia at that time. Um, what that meant is you had to learn how to beg for money on air, how to raise money on air, because that's how public radio and public television raises a significant amount of its cap budget is by online fundraising. But mm -hmm. what it did is taught me to become, become a really good professional beggar. Uh, and what that meant is that I didn't take it personally when people rejected me. It taught me how to ask for something I believed in. I believed in the mission of public radio and public television. And I could learn how to tell a story. Um, and sometimes we did 10 and 12 day fundraisers and you had to become very focused on it and really, really go after it on an ongoing basis and really learn how to pitch. And so, uh, those were, I tell people now that I'm a pro I became a professional beggar. And, and I mean that as the highest compliment because when you can do that, you then, I translated that skills in 1980 and left the nonprofit world to become a real estate developer, which is not something a profession you go to school for. I thought real estate was a way that somebody of modest means like me could acquire more, uh, more assets, but enabled me to learn how to raise capital, how to raise, ask for, uh, uh, ask for equity. Uh, it enabled me to do things uh, that I could have never done. So the world of, 
fundraising in public radio and public television really trained me for the world of racing capital. You know, when we think about it, one of the individuals we met when we were in that meeting together in Philadelphia was the individual who called himself the number one sales rep in the world. And when you think about it from a mindset point of view, and he was on the show a couple of years ago already, is there's a real adversity by a lot of the population around this concept of sales or asking for the order or asking for something. What do you say to audience or listeners who have this adversity or pushback on anything around the world word of influence or sales? Well, I think, first of all, I could not sell insurance to third party, even though I believe insurance is valuable. I think, uh, what we need to be able to do is to very simply uh, uh, decide what is it that you believe in. So if I believe in something and I believed uh, in it that I would, that is value to my integrity, then I don't believe it's selling. It's persuading you to see my point. And if you don't see the value in it, that's okay. But you have to believe in what, in what mm-hmm. you're selling. And I think a lot of times people sell stuff that it just to make money. And I think I have never been good at just selling stuff and making money. And if I did that, I probably would have been very wealthy, much wealthier and Uh, than I am now. But the truth is, I could only sell things that I believed in. So I was very good at selling. I served on lots of boards and created a lot of nonprofit charities. And I was really good at selling them because I believed in their purpose. Um, And so I would say to anyone who is doubting, you have to ask yourself, do you believe in your purpose? Do you have a mission that you believe in? And if you have a mission you believe in, then you must put it out there and you must go out and actually try to do that. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I think you have an obligation, actually. I would go further and say you have an obligation to let the world know what you believe in. Mm. And I know that you're, you're doing that, and so is your wife doing it as well as a professional developer. And it's interesting. I just had somebody else, as we were recording podcasts today, Ajit, where he was teaching sales, but he said one of the number one things people miss is to be interested in the other person. And yeah. really, it's not about selling your product. It's about getting to know them, about really building a relationship. And a lot of people, they're product-focused instead of relationship-focused. And if there is a benefit, then that's something that links into it, too. So I just thought I'd interject that. Now, Thank you. Uh, Adjit, one of the things in, in your bio is you had this responsibility in the British Virgin Islands or something in this luxury um, <laughs> hotel or... Uh, tell us about that. Where, where well, did that pop up in your life? It, it sort of comp- almost everything in my life is an accident in history. I got introduced to the British Virgin Islands in 1982, uh, and uh, I and, and I was very young. And uh, uh, but I, of course, when you're very young, you also think you know everything. But anyway, that journey ended up me uh, being a real estate developer down there for the better part of uh, 28 years. I commuted uh, between Wilmington, Delaware and the, and the British Virgin Islands either every other week or every two weeks for those 28 years, uh, which was a pretty interesting way of keeping sanity in both places. And, uh, and I developed a undeveloped 142 acres, 46 acres of land uh, into a luxury 
a villa resort. Um, it was one of the, it was extraordinary experience. It was an interesting time to do it. Uh, I, at that at that time, and even probably up to now, it's one of the largest projects from from ground up because it was nothing but a dirt road, and and so we had to put in infrastructure, in the utilities, in underground. I, I did that um, water desalination plant, and then sell people on the idea that a home uh, to, uh, to have a second or third or fourth home, depending on where their wealth was in in a very remote area of this remote island was a good idea. So it was, uh, it was a great experience and I enjoyed it. And uh, I, I left that assignment in uh, 2010. Uh, it coincided with uh, my, my wife, Sarah, moving from London back to Wilmington, back to the United States uh, as a managing director of Accenture. She had a three-year assignment. So we lived three years in London. Uh, again, I commuted from London to the BBI. And, uh, and so in 2010, really, all that commuting came to an end. It was time to start to start uh, a new journey in my life. And that's somewhat how I got into TEDx in 2011. And we're going to come to that in a minute, but I just want to back yeah. up a second. How do, how the heck do you uh, find this hundred plus acre property and start developing in British British Virgin Islands? Just I mean that didn't something align there for that to even poke its head up. I, I think alignment. So the way I would describe it, sometimes you have to be around something long enough. In that particular instance, it took the better part of seven, eight years uh, to, uh, to be be around uh, what what started originally as an incredibly small deal, that's a consulting assignment uh, over several years, moved into four acres of land, and then uh, and then moved into the people who had the land around you, reaching out and saying, you seem like a young and bright person who seems to have a lot of energy. And that brought me over in the next five, seven years into the whole larger piece of the property. So it could not have been planned. There was no master strategy. Uh, there is a certain amount of luck and certain amount of grace. And when it works, it's magically look brilliant. And when it doesn't work, uh, you say, how the hell, why, why did I even think about it? And I was blessed to have been given the opportunity. It could never happen today. And partly because the cost of entry uh, into a project like that today, just to do planning work, just to do the environment work, would be more staggering and than you could imagine than what it was then. Before, mm. In those days, you could do it for nickel and dimes, prayer and hope. Uh, no prayer and hope and no nickel and dimes could get you there today. Doesn't but it started as you. a consulting project and then it just grew from Absolutely. I, one time consulting project and I was hired by a group that wanted to, that was had a deposit on a piece of land and because I was quote unquote a real estate developer uh, they, they found me through a third party and I went and gave my advice. My advice was they should not invest in it. I thought it was highly risky and ironically enough they then said well now that you we still love the land we know you said it's risky. Help us figure out how to do it. That sort of began the journey. So I didn't even listen to my own advice. So, <laughs> so what did you, when you think about this, the, the length of time, the scale of this project over all those years, mm -hmm. what did you learn from that experience that the audience members can benefit from? Adjunct? Well, I will tell you the most important thing is I learned out of it is 
never lose, if you never pretend, regardless how hard you work, if you have less than majority control, you can be ousted any time. <laughs> so, so it's an important lesson to learn because you, you can have people who love you, who, who you travel with, who are your business partners, but if you don't control 50.1% of the equity interest, you can be dismissed at any time. And it happens to people after 20, 25, or 30 years. So I always tell people, um, if you really want to control your destiny, you must have a majority interest uh, in what you're working with. Otherwise, you're at the whims of other people. That's one. The other part of it is, uh, having fun in what you do. I had fun every day in what I did because I did not consider it work that I was doing because I was creating this sort of uh, thing that nobody needed, which was a luxury villa resort. And But in the process, I got to meet some of the most interesting people and what I was really doing. Nobody needed a second or third home. What they were trying to do was they were trying, they had their own dreams that they were trying to meet. And I felt I was, I was helping them find, help them satisfy their dream. In many ways, I was a dream builder and uh, I was helping them uh, set their dreams. And the, the size of their dreams differ. For some people, it was a small two bedroom house, luxury house, because there's nothing inexpensive there. And my largest uh, uh, person I helped to create a dream was somebody who ended up building a, uh, you know, $15, $16 million house, 41,000 square foot house, plus a lot of other real estate they bought. And then eventually after I left, they even put a golf course on the property. You know, so, you know, it's, it's about everybody's dreams are different, even though you're on the same property. It's figuring out, and again, listening to what people want as opposed to what you want to sell them. So part of this is the art of listening. Mm. And, you know, and they are a spectrum of uh, buyers on anything. doesn't matter what it is. People have different needs and paying attention to that is a very useful thing. Cool. Cool. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty. Now, are you still friends with the uh, individual who had the $15 million home? Yeah, they're my, I, we have a home in the British Virgin Islands still. It's two blocks away. I wouldn't, they're very private. I wouldn't describe them as uh, close friends, but they are, you know, we see each other. So they're very well, very wealthy. And so, but they're two doors neighbors. They're neighbors. Well, I'm, I'm, and I'm inviting myself to the British Virgin Islands as we well, see we, now it's publicly on the airs, right? So. Absolutely. <laughs> you should come down and it's a, it's an incredibly idyllic place because there is virtually no crime and, and it's a lot of people from around the world come there. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, fascinating, fascinating, and I'm sure people can go online and learn more about it. But Ajit, I want yeah. to jump into yeah. this last sort of uh, component of your life, section of your life, uh, chapter of your life, whatever descriptor around your um, TEDx sponsorship and host, and so you became accredited to do TEDx talks. Most people don't know you have to apply to be approved. Uh, but you started that on the East Coast back in 2010, 2011. 2011. Nearly yeah. 500 presentations. Do you, uh, do you recall how many downloads from your uh, TEDx uh, events have now accumulated? Oh, 
I just opened it up while you were talking because we have an online on on our website tedxwilmington.com. You can it's on every night at midnight. It crawls up to YouTube to get an updated number. The number as of last midnight last night was twenty seven million five hundred ninety eight thousand nine hundred sixty nine views uh, as of last night. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to somebody who is now propagated, <laughs> or uh, whatever word we want to use, 27 million views on YouTube. And as a TEDx uh, host and, and individual, you know, congratulations on that. So how did you get into that as a sponsor and somebody that's hosting one of those events? Right. So technical word is not a sponsor just for uh, because uh, those are uh, it's an organizer. So you actually apply for to TED uh, to become an organizer and uh, they vet you and they get, grant you a license to do a single event within one year. Uh, the condition of that license is you cannot make any money personally. You can pay other people. You can raise money to organize the event because events like that cost a lot of money to run if you do it well. Um, and then if you do it, then you can apply for another license and another license. So the bottom line on it is uh, I, uh, each license, there are 32 events, so I have 32 licenses. And uh, I, each time you do it, you get to, they then evaluate, they give feedback, they actually pay attention to every talk, they don't like everything uh, that uh, you do, and they'll make criticisms. And then, um, and so, but for me, it started accidentally, it surely did not intend to be a significant part of my life. But what, what was transformative of being a TEDx organizer for me was I got to meet people from around the world uh, who had the most unusual and interesting ideas and who gave a, an idea worth spreading uh, in 18 minutes or less. And, uh, and often and those were ideas that were, were I had never heard before or they were very different and perhaps some that I didn't even agree. Uh, but it really helped me to keep my mind sharp. And, uh, and I tell people at 65, if there's any reason I'm still have a, my brain is still alert, it's because of TEDx talks, both that I've organized and both that I've watched because it enabled me, me to really have a very open mind uh, about about what what the world of ideas was, and to have when you get 490 speakers, uh, you have such a breadth of views. Particularly, they come from. In our case, I think there was 40 countries, uh, 40 states. So you know, so a lot of variety, a lot of different diversity, and we were particularly good at inviting people around the world to come and give us give a talk. So we had an open application process, an online process. You filled it, filled an application online, and then a curatorial committee uh, reviewed it to give it diversity and big speakers. So we uh, we were very we had a very open process. Um, so. Uh, bottom line on that is that I felt that we had a, we had a, a remarkable uh, team of people, both organ helping me organize the events, but also remarkable people speakers. I would say it's truly a tribe. We describe both the speakers and our own volunteer group as a TEDx tribe, and the tribe is a people who share affinity or sharing ideas. You could be different, you could disagree, but you could disagree uh, politely. 
That's mm. really what now, I what, think. What got you into doing this in the first place? What motivated was you to even be an organizer? Purely an accident history. Uh, I had a friend uh, who he and I were working on a project together, and we needed a platform to share some ideas. I had sort of briefly heard about TEDx in 2009 when I lived in London from a friend, but really hadn't paid much attention. And this particular friend of mine who was a TEDx junkie, for the lack of a better word, said, you should apply because you got you, you have done a lot of things. I said, why didn't you apply? He said, well, I haven't done as many things as you, and I think you will have an easier time getting an organizer. I really applied without ever thinking I would be approved, or more importantly, that it would become dominate my life for eight years, as it did. And so it's one of those things, it's like almost everything I've done, it's an accident in history. It just sort of, it's, de- it's not deliberate, but it, it entered my life and then it possessed me. So <laughs> Possessed you, it did. When you think about the amount of events that you did uh, for TEDx during that window of time, you know, yep. seven, eight years that you were you know, fully invested in that. When you think about 32 events, and I, we do small events, I mean, it's just all-consuming to be able to put all of that together. Now, with that being said, Edgett, uh, I, w- I want to push the boundaries a little bit and say, what were the, uh, the most beneficial insights, if there is such a thing with, you know, 490 presentations that you captured from that experience of being a TEDx organizer? What were the some themes or clues that our listeners could benefit from that you well, would say, I, well, that, these are gems that everybody needs to embrace or consider yeah, at least? Yeah, those, that's a great question. I would say the speakers that were the most powerful were people who were being willing to be vulnerable uh, on stage and not appear as polished uh, uh, as some others were. There were speakers that were coached to the point they were so polished, it was almost like an algorithm was speaking, right? Mm. They gave great talks, but they were polished. There was no hum- humanness in them, I had almost no humanness in them, but because they wanted to appear perfect, because this was like being a New York Times bestseller. A lot of people saw this as a very important thing. And, you know, we have now uh, people who have given TEDx talks uh, at TEDx Wilmington, our top speaker has over 3 million views. So it matters, you know, uh, it really matters in that when you have that many views. But in reality, that particular speaker, who happens to be a woman named Galit Goldfarb, uh, she came from Israel uh, to give this talk. Uh, it was, uh, she didn't even tell her friends in Israel that she was giving a talk because she uh, didn't think it would be a great talk. She didn't even tell her husband, who only speaks Hebrew, that he was going to give that she was going to give this talk. She came by herself, gave this talk, and essentially uh, left it, uh, did it without no expectations. And I think it appealed to a lot of people around the world. It was about a different kind of diet. Well, called, I think it was called the Gorilla Diet, uh, but it came from her heart. It was based on a lot of knowledge. She had done it. But the truth of the matter is, uh, I think when people have an idea of spreading to speak it with it, it's okay to make a couple of mistakes. And I would tell you the speakers that have done it well 
uh, if you take the top 50 speakers more often than not, I would say humor was an important part of it. So learning how to make people laugh at yourself mm. and laugh at themselves is important. We don't do that enough, again, because we want to be seen as serious and successful. Uh, we don't take, we avoid uh, laughing at ourselves. And I think if you can laugh at yourself and people can laugh at, laugh with you, I think that's a really important asset. So I think being vulnerable. And then the other part is not to be pompous. I think some people, because they have a PhD or a medical degree or, or they give a lot of statistics and the facts and they want to appear like they are the resident expert on the subject, then uh, we honestly should uh, not listen to them, but they are pomp pompous people. We try to coach that out of them. But what I've learned, if I had one thing I've learned out of it is you cannot coach pompous people from being pompous. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, so, they, but they are so, uh, they just love what they are. They love the sound of their voice and, uh, and they have no empathy. And if, that's the last thing I was going to say. Having empathy for your audience is a global audience. TEDx is listened to anywhere where there's internet. So language is an issue. Uh, so making sure people in Afghanistan, people living, staying in Cameroon, people living in Bangladesh can listen and listen to it uh, in a, a warm, empathetic voice. It matters because that's where the, this is really, TED, TEDx is all about a global messaging about sharing ideas worth spreading. So mm. that's my that's my two cents. <laughs> well, a two cents. Well, you actually wrote a book about it called "The Magic of the Red Carpet." Yeah. So that was really your experience being a TEDx organizer. I want to clarify: it's not sponsor magic; right. it is organizer. Right. right. So, <laughs> hey, that's a sense of humor right there. Just absolutely. You, hey, I mean, if, if for me, if I was a sponsor, I couldn't be an organizer. That's one of the reasons I made the correction because. It'll, there's a Chinese wall that Ted puts in between sponsors and organizers. So. Oh, fair enough. So you're an organizer. I get that. And it's interesting. My follow-up question to the first one was, you know, what were some of the negatives? You've already covered that around this. You know, there's a very fine line between co confidence and arrogance. In arrogance, I'm better than everybody else. Confidence is I know my subject and I really want to share it. The other thing that you're really talking about is just the importance of being authentic and being real. And there just seems to be so many plastic people around these days that it's not necessary, is that people can sniff that out, they can see that. You know, as a speaker, I've done 3,000 presentations, Agit, but I still stutter. Mm. I still have and moments where I'll make a mistake, and my dyslexia can contribute to that. But at this mm. point, I really don't care. I just want to chat with you and have a conversation about transformational information. So I appreciate that. And for those of you that are listening, it was, is you're talking about you can't coach out pompous. Uh, what the uh, Marshall Goldsmith, and I happen to have a chance to be invited privately to one of his events in New York. He said, Ken, you can't coach integrity. And so I was just thinking that same thing. He said, if somebody lacks integrity, I says, I'm not working with them. I don't care how much you can pay me, but it's the same thing here. Uh, pompous integrity, I can't coach that out of you. These, these are character traits you have chosen to go down. So uh, thank you for sharing your experience of being, you know, one of the top uh, TEDx organizers over the years and just the amount of uh, work that you've done and over 27 million years, congratulations, or million, 27 million years views, pardon me. 
So is that congratulations on that kind of Thank you. level of Thank success. You. So, but I also just to say, I mean, we've known each other, you know, briefly at different times of events is that I see that authenticity in you and your wife, Sarah, as well. So now we only have a few minutes left and you have a, a new project that you're embracing. And you said to me, you know, before going on air, I think it might be my final chapter. But you've started a new a nonprofit called Second Chances Farm. So what is this about and what's driving you around this new project of yours? Okay. First of all, believe it or not, it's not a nonprofit. It's a for-profit that is solving a nonprofit problem. All right, so I did that. Okay, well, I stand corrected twice in the show already. Yeah, I mean, sorry about that. Sorry about that, my friend. Okay, no worries. So why why it's a nonprofit that solves, it's a for-profit that solves a nonprofit problem. What are we trying to do with Second Chances Farm? It's my legacy project at 65. I believe that I have 10 years to give uh, to this project. It's my... My wife and I don't have children, uh, so we want to leave behind something that impacts people. Uh, and so how do I do that? And through two TEDx talks uh, that I had the privilege of uh, hosting at TEDx Wilmington, uh, one happened to be on recidivism, and the other one happened to be on, uh, on uh, urban vertical farms. It occurred to me that I could address the problem of recidivism, which is really the issue of how many people get arrested within three years uh, after they or five years after they leave prison in our state of Delaware that number is 60% throughout the country is between 60 and 68% of people get rearrested within three years and go back in and in Delaware which is not one of the more expensive states it costs $47,500 to keep somebody in prison uh, for one year it's an expensive a thing to keep somebody in prison, more expensive than most universities are. And so it occurred to me as a capitalist, and I approach this as a very capitalistic view, that it's a great misuse of capital. What and what could I do? I can't solve all the problems of school to prison pipeline or poverty, but I thought maybe I could interrupt and reduce the recidivism rates in the back rate. And so to do that, I uh, learned about vertical farming, this indoor vertical farming, which is essentially growing plants indoors 365 days a year under light, uh, chemical-free, pesticide-free, herbicide-free. We grow it locally in local communities, and we would distribute food locally instead of transporting it from one end of the country to the end. So, for example, most of the lettuce we eat this week in Delaware comes from California or Mexico or Arizona or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. long distance with carbon footprint involved. So I thought I could address carbon footprint, which is I thought I could address recidivism. I could address address the issue of uh, locally grown food that is pesticide free. And by creating a business model, which essentially meant that the word second chances applies that we only hire people coming out of prison. The farm involves the indoor vertical farm. We combine those ideas and the idea is over a 10 year period, we would, uh, we would, uh, 
create a for-profit business that is profitable. And when the initial investors uh, exited the, the business, the uh, folks who are returning citizens who joined us in that, in that particular farm and every other farm that came in, they would then benefit, we would earmark 10% of that, uh, of the equ- total equity of the company for them. So that we essentially say we are creating a cr- new crop of compassionate capitalists in addition to plants. And so that's really, it's a, it is a much bigger project than I realized when I started. Uh, I wanted a small legacy to leave behind. And what I learned is you had to be at scale. So the farm that we are growing is in a 47,500 square foot building that we acquired in September. One half of the farm we call affectionately farm one, when it's fully set up, will grow uh, almost 4,400,000 plants a year, or produce a year. That's a lot of produce. It'll hire 30 people full-time who are returning citizens and give them an economic opportunity. They'll start with that uh, um, uh, in a training program called Entrepreneurship in Residence called, um, that's $31,200. So we are starting with livable wages and moving them up in the ladder where they can really become part of the industry. So it's a very ambitious model with a lot of twists and turns, less, uh, but it's really around attacking recidivism, that change and growing food locally, uh, and uh, trying to combine two very disparate ideas and giving sustainability by making it uh, for profit. Because if you made it non-profit, you have to go out and you raise money year-round. We want to be profitable so you didn't have to raise capital except in year one. Well, thanks for correcting me on that. And um, I'm not sure if you knew or not, but I have an agricultural background in a diploma no, agriculture. So we have a lot of greenhouses that are out here. And when yep. you think about vertical farming, you even see on a lot of these design shows where people do live walls, and that's really just yep. vertical farming, but it's more of a live wall for plants and to be able to do your uh, carbon exchange and your oxygen um, production through the plant. So that's pretty cool that you're doing that. And hydroponics has moved into a whole new automated role, hasn't it? Well, what what you can do is you can grow. The, the, the advent of LED lights has made it really possible. And the state, the new LED lights reduces heat, reduces electricity consumption, and you can uh, grow more plants in a smaller area. And so all of that has made it very attractive uh, to do um, and do uh, do 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 indoor vertical farming at scale. What has been, and we only have a couple of minutes left, but I do want to ask this question: What is the impact on your initial sort of group of 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 people who have come out of incarceration? What has been the impact that you've seen just in this embryonic stage with them? So the first co- uh, cohort of 10 returning citizens is uh, from, uh, 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 it started on January 6th. They got screened from 118 applications uh, and we ended up uh, picking one cohort, two cohorts, three cohorts, just so you know there were three. uh, And the first cohort was 10. And when they started out two weeks ago, Monday, uh, so today would have been- Wow, we are so fresh uh, here. We are fresh. 
I would have said on the weekend before, if you had asked me that question, I would have said, I don't expect all 10 of them would show up, even though we had a very vigorous screening process. And if they, and, and of the people who showed up, I expected 80% to make it through day one. And that by the end of the first week, I would be very happy if I got 80% of the people who started up. And I have no empirical reason to uh, say that, other than that the world of recidivism and the world of returning citizens is still littered uh, with stories of of people who have given up hope, and therefore it is very hard to do it. Mm. Uh, I would tell you on Friday night when I do a wrap-up meeting with the entire group every day at the end of the day at 4.30 to 5, because they work from 9 to 5, um, we all 10 people had made it through two weeks. All 10 people had made it through uh, the, the every day. And on, on the Friday, the first Friday, they get paid every other week, every other, every week, but a week, you know, with a week in arrears. So the first Friday, we, I asked uh, one of the guys who's 64, who had returned from prison after being in prison 26 years. I said, you worked 40 hours, you're going to get paid, paid 40 hours next Friday. Uh, when is the last time you got paid 40 hours? And he said, uh, aside from in prison where I got 19 cents an hour, he said, just 32 years ago when I got paid for a full 40-hour week. And, you know, dignity uh, matters. Mm. And that's what that made happen. All right? So I think from a practical point of view, uh, you, what I was... What what made me realize is what we're doing is so much more, so much more impactful than I could have ever imagined. Because imagine for 32 years, you had not gotten a paycheck for 40 hours before working for 40 hours, because the scarlet letter of serving time huge a huge word uh, that you know giving to people, and that's where you know when people reoffend, they just like you said they didn't necessarily have the options, they didn't necessarily have the skills. The skills haven't been developed. And, and in many cases, we're actually just talking about this with some friends, because if you think about the founder of CRG, he's a criminologist <laughs> so, and works, you know, producing crim degrees for people, is that if we don't train you and you come out, you've actually had a training ground in prison in the opposite with, uh, you know, value sets that uh, would drag you in a different direction. So. Congratulations, Ajit, for putting that together, putting your neck out there. Uh, 50,000 square feet is not a small building to start off with, but I get it. I understand it. You need to be at scale. Otherwise, you, you just can't function. All the things to produce, to provide, to have stores, to be able to, to have enough to, to give to them. So we're already at our end, if you can believe that, Ajit. When you like think all about good your things, life and has to to an end. You're, you're an awesome person, and I really appreciate you and Sarah. Now, first of all, before we get into that, how can people find out about you in what you're doing now? So what's, your, what's the site that people can go to to find out more about you and what you're doing? I would encourage people to visit us at www.secondchancesplural.com. Chances, plural, farm, singular.com. So it's www.secondchancesfarm.com. We'll make sure that's in the show notes for everybody. But all of that, Ajit, wrapped up, and you've had a rich life with lots of different experiences. What would be your final piece of wisdom you would share for the audience that they could take away beyond what you've shared so far that would be helpful for them in, as they live their life out after this show? 
It's never too late to start again. It's never too late to take risks uh, and be passionate in what you're doing and make a difference. Mm. And you're an example of that. Many other people are trying to retire at 65, though I joke, Ajit, that uh, (laughs) Moses was 80 years old before his first real job. So that's my sense of humor. I said, and he he said he was keen eye at 120. So you're just getting going. You you don't have 10 years. You, you got to way more than that, my friend. Well, you know, we'll take every day as it counts. We know how many people die well before their prime. So we'll take it, <laughs> take each day. Thanks yeah, for having love, me. Love Thanks. Is, well, stay, stay on the line, Ajit. Thanks. But I just wanted to say the Secrets of Success listeners, you've been listening to Ajit George. Uh, we'll have all his contact information. But as always, we want to thank you for giving us your most valuable commodity, and that is your time. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share, leave a positive review in whatever platform you are consuming this podcast on. You've been listening to Secrets of Success, and I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.